So if you, can you guys see this image? Okay, so if you happen to be in Hyde Park, London, in a corner of the park called Speaker's Corner in the early to mid 1950s, you might have seen this gentleman and his sign declaring that the end is at hand. So during that time frame, World War II had ended successfully, but there was a new Cold War that had started. And it was between the Soviet Union, which was occupying the eastern part of Europe, and the United States and its allies, which were occupying the western part of Europe. Now, both of these countries, of course, the United States had dropped uh, an atomic bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, but during this time, they had also tested a hydrogen bomb, which was orders of magnitude more powerful than those two bombs. Well, the Soviets had also tested, successfully tested, a hydrogen bomb. So you had two nuclear superpowers facing off against each other over Europe. And I can remember we were stationed in Europe with my dad, who was in the army in the early 70s, right, Mom? My mom's here, uh, so she can verify. The 70s, and, and part of the exercises that they would do was to prepare for an incursion that the Soviets were going to come across, what was called the Fulda Gap, which means nothing to you guys. But anyway, they would come across the Fulda Gap and they would overwhelm Western Europe. So even in the 70s, that was a real fear. Well, in the 50s, it was almost panic level because people just weren't sure what was going to happen. So that fear, that real thought that the end could occur at any time motivated people to do things, motivated them to change their behaviors. Millions of school kids, and maybe some of you in this room, took part in duck and cover drills. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> duck and cover drills. People would dig up their backyards and they would install and stockpile fallout shelters. And then they'd practice how quickly they could get to them. I see some heads nodding, so some of you are familiar with that. Some of these fallout shelters actually are still in people's homes or people's backyards. They're collector's items now. But at the time, there was a very real thought that the end could happen at any time. Now, thankfully, we know that the Soviet Union and the United States did not have a nuclear confrontation over Europe. In fact, the Soviet Union collapsed. And so we don't have that same fear but what, how would our lives be different if we had that thought in the back of our mind that the end could occur at any time? What would we do differently? How would we react differently? Our scripture that we're going to look at today is going to tell us that we are in the last days. That there is only a certain number of days left. So we want to look at our mindset. What should we be doing in light of that? Before we do that, some of you may quibble with my assertion that we're in the last days. So I want to, <coughs> excuse me, I want to show my work. And I want to prove to you that we are in the last days. Now when I say last days, I'm not putting a definitive date on the end, so I can't say that next Thursday at 4 o'clock, Jesus will return. 
because Jesus himself said that only the Father knows the day and time of his return. Some of you may be familiar with Harold Camping. Uh, He's deceased now, I think. But anyway, he famously and wrongly predicted the end of the world several times. So Harold would say it's going to occur in 1978. 1978 would come and Harold would say it's going to be this. It's going to be this. And he was always wrong. So we're not putting an definitive date on it. But we can say with certainty that since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is a countdown clock that is ticking, and it's ticking down, not up. We're not, we're not gaining days. If you look at Acts 2, verses 16 and 17, this is when the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles at Pentecost. If you remember this story, Peter is preaching, uh, the apostles, they're speaking in tongues, and there are other people proselytes and Jews in Jerusalem for the feast and they hear these guys speaking in their own languages so there's Parthians and Medes and they said what is going on are these guys drunk and Peter goes they're not drunk it's only nine o'clock in the morning but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel and in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 1, 1 through 12, says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world through whom he also created the world, excuse me. Now, one of the problems we have with last days is that we're bound by time. So when we think last, we want to think, oh, it's just a few. It's just a couple of days, or it's next week. And that's not the way that God sees time. In 2 Peter, Peter says that a thousand days is like, a thousand years is like a day for God, and a day is like a thousand years. God doesn't see time. The important thing is to understand there's only a certain number of time certain number of days left. And before we look at our scripture, I just want to quickly say, for, for some of you, because I can see your faces, uh, this is not a happy thought that we're in the last days. It is? Okay, for some of you it is. For Rick it is. Okay. Rick, I, you never disappoint, brother. I am so thankful for you. I can't tell you. All right? Kevin is glad too. Okay, but this was meant to be an encouragement. When, when Peter wrote to them, they were undergoing persecution, an intense persecution. And Peter's writing to them and he's saying, this is not going to last forever. There is a time that God has set. We're meant to get, like they were meant to get, the idea that God is sovereign. You know, Rome thought they were in control. Rome wasn't in control. The United States or China or Russia they think they're in control. They're, they're not even remotely in control, right? The God who sits on the throne of heaven is in control, and he set a day. And Paul says, <coughs> excuse me, we're not going to look at it, but Paul says that we're just sojourners here, that we're looking for a better country. As good as things are here, and they're good, they're very good, The world that we're going to, the redeemed heaven and the redeemed earth, are better. And so the fact that we're in the last days should be an encouragement to us. 
I also forgot my glasses, guys, so I apologize. It's just a hot mess today. <laughs> Which is good, because I'll depend on God, and it won't be. If anything comes to this, it'll be God, not me. Okay, so let's look at our scripture. So the, we're in the last days. We don't know when those last days will be. So what should we be doing? How should we be changing our mindset? What are some things we should be doing? Peter's going to tell us. <clears throat> says, the end of all things is at hand. <clears throat> Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glor belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let's look at that. Another a quick side note. This was an excruciating message to study and to prepare for. Not because this text is not good, but because over and over, you know when God convicts you, it is painful. It, it, in one sense, it's delicious, it's good, you like it. In another sense, it is excruciatingly painful. It was as I was reading through these verses and thinking about how I don't do a lot of this stuff very well, I had that conviction. So this, this was a painful message for me. Kind of like Mike's message about Job. It was painful. Uh, and it was hopefully life-changing for me. All right, so let's look. What should we be doing? Okay, the first thing we should be doing is be sober-minded, self-controlled, and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And I want to look at quickly three reasons why we should be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. We've already covered one, that the time is short, right? There's only a certain number of days left, either for us or for the world, one or the other. And so we need to be about the business of praying. I had a pastor friend one time, and he told me a story about his sister, <clears throat> his father and his sister. He had come from a line of preachers. His father was a preacher. He was a preacher. But his sister was a prodigal, and it grieved his dad a lot. And every day for 42 years, her father prayed that she would return to the faith. Every day for 42 years, diligently. On his deathbed, she did. And the son had gone to the dad and said, Dad, I just don't think she's going to do it. I don't think she's going to return. And the dad said, no, I'm going to keep on doing it. Because he knew that he only had a certain number of days. And while he could, he was going to pray for her. You know, the son loved his sister, and he probably would have prayed, but not in the same way the dad would have. And the dad knew that. He said, I've only got a certain number of days. I'm going to pray. And that's what Peter's trying to tell us when he says, because the days are short, because the end is at hand, pray. Be self-controlled and sober-minded in your prayers. Another reason that we should be sober, self-controlled, I'm going to get those confused, so I'm going to use them interchangeably. We should be self-controlled and sober-minded when we pray is because we should be praying weighty 
and meaningful prayers for ourselves and for each other. You know, when I look at my prayer life, I just am astounded and frankly a little bit ashamed how much of it is concerned both for myself and honestly for you guys with how much of it is concerned with comfort or pain avoidance or mundane things. And listen, there is nothing wrong with praying for health or for jobs or for food. Those are things that that we should pray for. I think it's right to pray those things for each other. But there's so much more that I often miss when I don't pray weighty and meaningful prayers. And if you look at the biblical pattern, if you look at the things that Jesus prayed for the church, if you look at the things that Paul prayed for the church, they were, they were pretty, pretty meaningful prayers. We're going to look at, quickly, Ephesians 3, 16 through 19, because it is a perfect example of the things we should be praying for each other. This is what Paul prays to the Ephesians. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Yeah. Do you or anyone you know need to be strengthened with power through his spirit? Do you or anyone you know need to be rooted and grounded in the love and know the breadth and length and height of God's love? Do you or anyone you know need to have, know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? Do you or anyone you know need to be filled with the fullness? Filled, excuse me, filled with the fullness of God? You do, because I need that. And I'm assuming that everybody else out here does too. What, what would our lives, how would our lives be different? What would they look like if we prayed these types of prayers to, for each other? What would this church, how would this church be different? How would it, what would it look like? How would our witness to the community be different if we prayed these types of prayers? So we should be self-controlled and sober-minded because the time is short and we should be praying weighty and meaningful prayers for each other. And then the last reason we should be self-controlled and sober-minded in prayer is because of the object of our prayers. Excuse me. The object of our prayers is a holy and just God. Uh, one of my favorite passages of scripture is Isaiah 6. Mike alluded to it last week when he talked about Isaac and his vision of God at Bethel. And King Uzziah had died. Uzziah was a longtime king of Judah. He had just died. And Isaiah sees a vision of God. And this is what he sees. It's, it was too long to put on a slide, but I'm going to read it to you guys. That wasn't the vision. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, 
and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In this one passage of scripture, we see, we see God's majesty and his holiness. And, and that's still the God that we worship. That's still the God that we pray to. God hasn't changed. But we see God's mercy and his loving kindness to Isaiah and by extension to us. Because Isaiah, God could have struck Isaiah dead. Right, over and over in scripture, God says, my face shall not be seen. You can't see my face and live. And Isaiah lived. God provided the means for him to live and stand in God's presence. And guys, the same thing has, has occurred for us. Hebrews tells us that we have a great high, we have a greater high priest, okay, who sits at the right hand of the majesty on heaven. He's our advocate, and he stands at God's right hand on our behalf. And because of that, we can approach this throne of grace, as Hebrews 4 tells us, we can approach it boldly. The ESV says, with confidence. Other translations say boldly, we can boldly come to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is an undescribable privilege that we can approach the throne of grace. But we should approach it reverently, remembering that it is a throne that we approach. All right, Peter tells us above all, Keep loving one another. <coughs> Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. It says above all, <clears throat> so denotes the importance of loving one another. That's a common theme in Scripture. Jesus said the way that people would know we were His disciples was because of our love for each other. And the Book of First John says. That if you say you belong to Christ, but you don't love your brother, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. Those are very strong words. So how seriously God takes our love for each other. And Peter says we should love earnestly. Well, what, what does earnestly mean? It means genuinely, sincerely. That we should hang in there with each other when it gets tough. And let's be honest, loving each other is tough sometimes. Right? Because we're sinful creatures, we disappoint each other, we upset each other, but we should have an earnest love for each other. How do you know if you have an earnest love for other people? By what it costs you to love them. This is 1 Corinthians 13, and, and most of you are probably familiar with it as a wedding passage, and I don't really want to rain on anybody's parade, but it's not meant as a wedding passage necessarily. So Paul is writing to the church in Corinth 
because they're arguing over spiritual gifts. Which one is the most important? Which one is better? And who has that gift? And Paul says, you guys have got it all wrong. Completely, completely wrong. Paul says, yes, you should desire spiritual gifts. And yes, you should desire the more important spiritual gifts. But if you don't love each other, if you don't have love, you're nothing. You're a noisy gong. If you give your body to be burned, but you don't have love, you're nothing. Love is the preeminent coin of the realm in God's kingdom. And this is the type of earnest love that Peter is talking about. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So this is one of my ouch moments with God. I look at this passage and I think, do I love, do I love my family like this? Do I love you guys like this? And I got to be honest, the answer is sometimes no. Right? But what would it look like if we did? What would it look like if this characterized our love for each other? This is not a love that we can manufacture. This is not a love that you can do on your own. This is a supernatural love. It's meant, it's meant to be that way. It's by design a supernatural love so that we would depend on Christ who loves us like this, who loves you like this, who loves me like this, to put that love for each other in our hearts. Going back to praying, we should be praying this kind of prayer for each other also. God, would you give me a patient love for my brothers and sisters? Would you give me a love that doesn't envy, doesn't boast, that bears all things, believes all things, endures all things? Would you give me that kind of love? What, what would our lives be, how would our lives be differently if we did? Peter says that that kind of love covers a multitude of sins. Okay, the world tells us that, that love does this to sin, right? Love doesn't see sin, or love looks the other way at sin. That's not an earnest love that the Bible talks about. That kind of love confronts sin. It confronts it lovingly, but it confronts it forcefully and genuinely. Most of you are familiar with Matthew 2.18. Matthew 18, excuse me. (coughs) I need some drugs. Or maybe I don't need some drugs. Maybe that's the problem. I took drugs and I didn't need to. Matthew 18, the first part of that verse says, If your brother sins against you, go to your brother. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. Right? Sin creates a rift between individual believers And it creates a rift between believers, individual believers in God. Jesus, when he was teaching in the temple, he said, if you are giving your gift to God, listen, if you are worshiping God and you remember that you've sinned against your brother, stop worshiping God and go be reconciled to your brother. And then come back and offer your gift to God. That's how important healing that rift is. An earnest love that covers a multitude of sins will want to heal that rift 
when it's either done against us or when we've done it against somebody else as quickly and completely as possible. That's an earnest love that covers a multitude of sins. And Peter says that we should show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Most of us, when we probably think of hospitality, we think of having somebody over to our home for a meal or maybe game night. And that's what we think of hospitality. And that's an aspect of it. But there's a deeper, richer biblical meaning to hospitality. Biblical hospitality is really opening our lives up to each other. We look at, I don't know if do I have Acts. Okay, let's look at Acts 2 because that's a great picture of biblical hospitality. It said, All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. For some of us, this is a difficult passage because we're Americans. We don't, we see socialism or something else in this passage, which is not what this passage, what this passage is about. The early church was together. They were a community. They ate together. They worshiped together. The church was not taking people's possessions. If someone had a need, the church voluntarily and willingly and joyfully sold whatever they had and did whatever it took to meet those needs. This is not any kind of socialism or communism. And one of the reasons they did was because when you, whether you were a Jew or you were a pagan Gentile, when you left that for Christianity, you were leaving behind your culture. You were leaving behind your family. Many of you know that we were in the military and we were stationed in Japan. And that is a difficult mission field. If you think of the Kamiyas, pray for them because they've got their work cut out for them. Because in that culture, being Japanese is what's important. And to leave that culture was difficult. We would have women that would come to faith and would be physically restrained by their mothers-in-law from coming to church and being baptized because you were dishonoring the culture. We had a gentleman in our church for three or four years, for at least the two years that we were here, he would faithfully come to church, he would assent to the claims of the gospel, but he could not make himself become a Christian because he was a business owner. And doing so would impact his business and he had employees that depended on him. He was making a break with his culture when he did that. We don't have that same dynamic, so that's difficult for us to understand. But God intends for the community of faith to be our primary community. God ordained it that way. This is the family that we are going to take into eternity with us. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so while we're here on this earth, we're meant to love and to serve and to worship and to meet each other's needs. That's how God has ordained it. And so when Peter says, do all this, show this hospitality, open your lives to each other without grumbling, I think one of the ways he, one of the reasons he does it is because that's difficult. 
that's hard. It's hard for us in our Western tradition to open our lives to each other. And I will tell you that it's difficult for me to do it. I'm a pretty hardcore introvert, as my wife will tell you. My wife is the exact opposite of me. She's a pretty hardcore extrovert, which is good. But it's difficult for me to open myself up to people. It's difficult for me to open my life. Because I realize, guys, the older I get, the more a creature of habit I am. I like my comforts. I like my routines. I don't like them being messed with. And biblical hospitality messes with all that. Because I have to open my life to people. I have to be involved. I have to enter into their struggles. They enter into mine. I give you permission to, to enter into my life, to convict me, to tell me when I'm messing up. That's messy stuff, and it's scary to us. And so we should do that without grumbling because it is what God ordained. When, I don't know about you guys, but when I grumble or complain about hospitality, what I'm, I don't say this out loud, but what I'm saying to God is, God, I know better than you. I, I, I don't need anybody. I, I can do it fine on my own. I've got this. That, that is a lie. Right? The idea that you can succeed, that you can have any kind of success in the Christian life alone might be an American idea, but it is not a Christian idea. We need each other, and we need each other way more and to a depth that we don't think we do. Which is one of the reasons that we push small groups around here. We want you to be in a small group where you can slow down, you can be involved in other people's lives. A little plug for next week. Next week during Sunday school hour, we're going to have a ministry fair. And there will be opportunities for you to be in a small group. You need to get in one. And you really need to be in one if you're sitting out there thinking, oh, I don't need to be in a small group, I don't need anybody. You're exactly the type of person that needs to be in a small group. You need to be here next week. So we need, to do, we need to do life together. We need to show biblical hospitality to one another. As we're winding down, Peter says that we need to use our God-given gifts to serve each other. And there's a lot to unpack in just a few sentences. Now, we've talked about spiritual gifts before. I'm not going to get into individual spiritual gifts Mark Ettinger taught on spiritual gifts last September. If you're a visitor here, or if you don't remember that sermon, I would encourage you to go back and look at that. Mike has taught on this subject before, spiritual gift. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, and you want to find out, which you should, you should want to find out, then speak to one of the elders, please. Nothing would give us more pleasure than to help you figure that out. We will be happy to do whatever we can to give you any kind of resources to help you figure out what your spiritual gift is. So we're not going to talk about individual spiritual gifts, but I do want to talk about what Peter says. Peter says, use your gifts as one who is a good steward of God's varied grace. That's significant. Because a steward is someone who manages something that doesn't belong to them on behalf of someone else. So 
the landowner, usually it's property or maybe it's money, but it's something that doesn't belong to you. You're managing it on behalf of someone else. Peter says that our gifts are like that. So we're saved. We're placed into God's family as he desires, where he wants us. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts to be used for the benefit of God's family, God's, for God's purposes. They're not our gifts. They're God's gifts. We're just managing them on behalf of God. That should change the way we think about our gifting and serving. <coughs> Excuse me. I apologize, guys. That should change the way that we think about our gifting and serving. Because if I understand, one, that the gift is not mine, and two, that I'm going to give an account to God for how I used this gift, then that should motivate me to understand what that gift is and to use it fully for God's purposes and God's kingdom. Because remember, we're in the, we're in the last days. There's going to come a time where the end is going to come. If you're a believer, you're, not going to, you're going to face a judgment. It won't be in regards to your salvation, but it will be in regards to rewards, what you've done in this life. One of those is how you use God's, how good a steward you were of God's gifts. 1 Corinthians 3 says, if you build with hay, stubble, wood, or straw, that's all going to get burned up. You yourself will be saved, but as one who has come through the fire with just the clothes on your back. That's my paraphrase. That's not the actual text. How we steward God's grace in our gifts should matter to us. And Peter's going to distinguish between speaking gifts and serving gifts. He doesn't give us a lot of details. He doesn't say, this is what a speaking gift is, this is what a serving gift is. And I'm, again, I'm not going to get into that either. Peter gives us guidelines about how we should use those gifts. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. That sounds pretty important, doesn't it? And it should. If you are someone who has a speaking gift, when you speak, you are speaking oracles of God. Think about if you're an evangelist, which is one of speaking gifts, you are speaking the mysteries of God. You're speaking the gospel, which is, Scripture tells us is what? It's the power of God unto salvation. If you're exhorting someone or you're encouraging someone, you're speaking oracles of God, which is, by the way, one of the reasons James tells teachers, not many of you should be teachers because you're going to incur a stricter judgment, which is one of the reasons it terrifies me sometimes to stand up here and speak. Because you're speaking the oracles of God. Your words are not your own. Let's, this is from Paul, not Peter, but this is how Paul understood this. And this is what he said. 1 Corinthians 1, 17. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent, <coughs> excuse me, eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be emptied of its power. So that's to unbelievers. And then to believers, Paul was talking about in 
1 Corinthians 2, says, We impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The oracles of God. That is serious stuff, and we should take it seriously. If you have a speaking gift, you should not handle that glibly or carelessly. You should do it knowing that you are speaking the oracles of God. And Peter says, if you have a serving gift, oops, I'm missing a slide, my mistake. Peter says, if you have a serving gift, that you should serve with the strength that God provides. Just as we're not meant to love each other in our own strength, we're not meant to serve in our own strength. Why? Because we get tired, because it gets frustrating. How many of you, when you get the email from Patty Ann or Julie saying, your time to serve has come up, you're like, oh, really? Didn't I just do that? Do I have to? I don't want to. And we grumble and complain because serving is a chore. Chances are, if that's your attitude, and I will say it's been my attitude sometimes, if that's your attitude, it's because we are not serving in God's strength. Listen, God gives gifts that he means and intends for us to use for the benefit of his people. When you're exercising your gift, your serving gift, in God's power, it is a joy to do. Not that it's always easy, because that's not true. But there will be a joy. And joy is not the same as happiness. You guys understand that, right? You're not always going to be happy being down in the nursery or making coffee or greeting, or the other hundreds of ways that we need to serve around here. But you will have a joy knowing that you are being a good steward of God's varied grace, that you are benefiting God's people by the use of that gift. There's a joy that comes from serving in God's power and in God's strength. And if you don't have that joy, you might want to think, whose power am I serving in? And what's the upshot of all this? Go back. When we are good stewards of God's varied grace, when we understand that when we speak, we speak as one who speaks the oracles of God, when we serve in God's power, what happens? God is glorified. Right? Peter says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That should be our goal in everything, is to bring glory to God. Not to bring attention to ourselves, but to bring glory to God. We're going to close here. The worship team can come on up. So the end is at hand. We're in the last days. And that shouldn't be a discouragement to us. We're about to close out this year. 2018 is almost over. It has 60 hours left. And we're going to be in a, we're going to be in a brand new year. Let's live in such a way as Peter tells us to. Let's pray while we have the time. Let's serve while we have the time. Let's love while we have the time. 
to the end that God would be glorified. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are sovereign and holy and just. Father, that you have purchased our redemption, that we belong to you. Father, thank you that you are sovereign over our days and hours and minutes. Father, would you help us to live with that in mind? Let that be an encouragement, Father. Let it be a, a motivation for us to work diligently and hard for your glory and for your honor, dear Lord. It's in your beautiful name we pray it. Amen.